Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 16th, 2024. My guest is Michael Oren. Between 2009 and 2013, he was Israel's ambassador to the United States. He was later a member of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. He is the author of many books, but I particularly want to recommend Six Days of War, June 1967 and the Making of the Modern Middle East, which is a superb treatment of the Six-Day War. Michael's substack is entitled Clarity. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, Russ. Good to be with you. Uh, you're a former ambassador to the United States. In, in 2011, you published uh, Power, Faith, and Fantasy, America in the Middle East, 1776 to the Present. How do you understand the United States' role in the Middle East right now in this kind of intense, not kind of, this intense moment? Unclear. Unclear. If I've been asked to, you know, define President Biden's administration's policy in the Middle East, and this is going back to the, you know, the inception of his administration, till today, I can't. There's no clear line. There's a tremendous amount of zigzagging. Um, you know, for a small example, uh, for several years, uh, the administration cold-shouldered Netanyahu. For whatever reason, they cold-shouldered him. That wasn't a fact. Didn't invite him to the White House. They cold-shouldered the Saudis, you know, because of the Khashoggi affair. They cold-shouldered the Saudis. And then suddenly, uh, last summer, they turned around and started bear-hugging both the Saudis and Bibi uh, in an attempt to uh, broker a peace agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But the total, you know, Volte face, as they say, about face. Um, in this crisis, they started out unequivocally in support of Israel. Um, the president's astonishing speech of October 10th. I've never heard a speech like it in my many years of following U.S.-Israel relations. Unequivocal support for Israel, categorical, categorical condemnation of terror, and signing on to our goal of destroying Hamas. Uh, Secretary Blinken came a few days later. Uh, he reiterated that that pledge. But in both the remarks, they also stated they expected Israel to conform with international um, law regarding warfare. And then over the coming months, uh, criticism began to mount. that uh, Israel was, to quote Secretary Blinken, killing entirely too many Palestinians, which begs the question, how many Palestinians killed would have been enough? Okay, it's a strange thing to say. Uh, and one wonders, what did they expect in a, in a, in a brutal urban warfare against an enemy that's deeply embedded, um, behind a civilian population? America's had similar experiences in, in Fallujah, um, in Mosul. They know what it's like. Um, and in fact, in both those battles, as well in Kosovo, the civilian to soldier ratio of dead was much higher on the American side than it is on the Israeli side. But the criticism kept on mounting. And then it was uh, tied into the day after, whether we're going to have a two-state solution, whether the Palestinian authority would be involved in that, whether Palestinian refugees from in the south of Gaza would be admitted to the north, uh, back to the north. It was like one issue after another. Um, and throughout, the administration kept up two principal 
policies, which were crucial for Israel's security. One was casting vetoes in the Security Council over attempts to impose a ceasefire. And the second was to maintain a steady and sometimes expedited flow of vital ammunition. We run low on ammunition. And those two core um, policies have been remained, but everything around it is very confusing. Um, for example, if you're a leader of Hamas and you're dug in a tunnel and you hear the Secretary of State say this, what you would conclude is, I've got to dig in my heels and hold on for a little while longer, get Israel to kill more civilians, and that's eventually going to cause a rupture. And at that point, the United States will start demanding a ceasefire. And that's what I need as a leader of Hamas. Hamas needs a ceasefire in order to win the war. Ceasefire simply means Hamas wins. So the mess is very, very confusing uh, with regarding uh, Iran. So here, United States forces in Iraq and Syria have been attacked something like 135 times by rockets and drones. Uh, the United States has, for the most part, withheld its fire. There's been some return fire, but very little. The Houthis, backed by Iran, have closed international, all but closed international shipping through the vital Babel Mandeb waterway. Um, the United States has returned fire, but ineffectively, uh, with some uh, Western allies. Um, today, the Houthis are firing again. And this administration simply refuses to say the I word. Since it refuses to say Iran. And it's extraordinary. Ron, I would say, bears something close to 97% of all the warfare interruption violence going on in the region today. And it's the one country that has played zero price. Zero. And um, I haven't heard any utterances from Washington saying, Iran, you're going to pay a price if you keep on doing this. And backing up well, with the credit. Right there. So if you ask me, I'm confused. I'm as an Israeli and as a person who personally knows Joe Biden fairly well, worked with him, I'm deeply appreciative of the fact that he's maintained these two core policies. And, uh, but I'm confused slash deeply concerned. And um, I'm asked on the Israeli press, you know, how long will that continue? And my response is always not indefinitely. Uh, I want to go back to something you said in passing that, is um, a little mystifying to me as uh, as an outsider. You talked about the two things the United States is doing for Israel, supplying munitions, which they have done um, uh, briskly and thoroughly. They have also worked at the United Nations to um, veto condemnation of Israel. Uh, at the same time, uh, last week, uh, the uh, International Court of Justice, through uh, South Africa brought a case against Israel there for accusing Israel of genocide. Now, reasonable people might disagree about ex what exactly genocide is. I, I don't think it's what Israel's doing in Gaza, but maybe maybe someone can make the case. Well, they have made the case. I don't. Someone might find it persuasive. Thoughtful people might find it persuasive. But what's the significance, the practical significance to Israel of those two? kinds of condemnations, either the United Nations uh, demanding a ceasefire, say, or whatever statement they might make, condemning Israel for its actions, or the International Court of Justice. A as a lowly citizen, I look at those things and see it as, um, I don't know, the, the old-fashioned expression would be so much chin music. That probably doesn't communicate to many younger <laughs> people these days. But why, is it important? And why? And, and as a amb former ambassador, I assume you're involved in, in attempts to stop those things from happening in your time. Why are they important? Uh, for one reason, one way, reason only. 
they can serve as a basis for boycotts and sanctions. They could put further pressure on the Biden administration to uh, cease supplying those two policies that are essential for our security. That's where they're important. Okay. Well, they are. Uh, the, those, the, the munitions are important, which, which raises a question that, you know, my colleague Danny Gordas uh, has, has raised, and I'm sure other people have as well, and you probably have too. W- one of the wake-up calls of uh, this moment is uh, Israel's dependence on the United States for, one, munitions, and two, uh, some level of deterrence of Iran in, in the area. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Probably, yes, they haven't mentioned Iran, but they did bring two uh, large aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean. I think one of them went home for to went home. fuel up, but um, it's it's a significant uh, step. Do you think the United States um, Israel relationship is is now for is from Israel's side more important than ever that our evidently we have a nuclear weapon? It's the best, you know the, the Worst kept secret in the world. Is that not a sufficient deterrent? And how much does the United States, how much does Israel depend on the United States? And what might Israel do about that going forward? That's about five different questions. So let's unpack it. Um, First of all, cards on the table. Um, I was the only member of the Israeli government who in uh, 2016 opposed the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, uh, renewing the 10 year uh, package of American aid, the Obama package. Uh, replaced the the Bush package. It was slightly it, it was slightly improved monetarily, but with harsher terms. And I have long been an opponent. Me, Mister America, Israel. Right. I've been an opponent of the aid uh, for many many reasons. Um, and you know, it's everything from the fact that we are a uh, we are an affluent society. We're a strong society. Receiving aid at this point is is not consonant with our being. It is sends the wrong message to the region of dependency and weakness. Um, certainly at a time when America's foreign policy is unclear, when America's withdrawing from many areas of foreign, of foreign affairs, the value of the, of the aid was always greater than its monetary aid. It was the strategic value of that aid. It sent a message to everybody, look, the greatest superpower in the world stands behind the state of Israel. Um, and everyone should get that message. Well, how strong is that message today? Um, and we pay a price for the, for the aid. We pay a price in terms of opportunity costs. You're an economist. And we pay a price in the fact that we don't actually get to buy what we want to buy. And sometimes we buy things that we may not need um, that remain very costly. And I'm thinking of one thing is the F-35 jet, which costs twice as much as any other jet to maintain. Right? And it's the last manned fighter aircraft in history. Um, and we're, we've got it now for about 30, 40 years. Um, very, very expensive jab. Many issues like that. But the, the biggest issue now is um, the control it gives in America over our foreign policy. It is a concession of sovereignty and a decision making. And we see it now very poignantly. If you would have asked most Israelis on October 6th whether they believed that they could, Israel could defend itself by itself against any Middle Eastern adversary or uh, any combination of Middle Eastern adversaries, most Israelis would have said, of course we can. Ask the same question to Israelis on October 7th, and you get the same percentage of Israelis saying, we can't do that. You know, we can't get these, we can't tell these, we can't tell the aircraft carrier strike groups, okay, guys, we got it. You can go home. We're in control here. And uh, no one's willing to say that. And here we have the Secretary of State sitting in our war cabinet, which is an extraordinary 
concession of, uh, of sovereignty. I think there's a, a deepening realization in this country. And, um, you know, I hate being the person ahead of his time um, that we're going to have to move on to something else, that one of the great goals of Israel post-Gaza war will be to achieve strategic independence from the United States of America. That doesn't mean that America doesn't remain our principal ally, that we don't share the democratic values, that we don't have close, close relationships with uh, with uh, American Jewry, but the relationship should be one of partnership. We should be cooperating in fields that are vital to both our security establishments in cyber, in um, in laser technology, it's called you know, reinforced energy, uh, computer science, and joint maneuvers. We should continue that, but not on the basis of someone giving and someone receiving. Because uh, as we know, there is no such thing as a free lunch. And um, this lunch is anything but free. I just want to clarify to listeners who may not know, uh, aid to the United States to Israel is essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, is essentially vouchers for purchasing military equipment. It's not, to say there's strings attached, is to, it's not strings are attached. It's more like puppeteer strings. It's explicitly in the form of in-kind transfers of uh, military products, as you say, some of which we may or may not want, uh, and others which are more expensive. And it's certainly as, and I, I totally agree with you as a wealthy now sovereign nation, uh, which we were not in the past, but Israel's now a wealthy sovereign nation. Uh, the idea that we are on welfare for the United States is very bad, I think, for our relationship with our neighbors. Uh, it gives them excuses and, and stories to tell that I don't think are helpful to us. Uh, but is that a correct characterization of USAID? I also think it gives our enemies, even the United States, they say, well, we can criticize Israel because we pay taxes. Sure. And they're to pay Israel. And our bonds and they're are right. <laughs> well, actually, if you, if you do the math, it comes out to something like, you know, $0.1 a month per American in aid to Israel. I mean, by the way, the aid is about $4 billion a year. You know what $4 billion buys you today in military terms? It buys you half of one Zimwalt-class destroyer. Okay, so you're paying a huge price uh, for an aid package, which, okay, 40 years ago was 50% of our defense budget, but now it's closer to 16%. And, and you're right. Now, in the past, the, one of the reasons I opposed the uh, Obama MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, as opposed to the Bush one, was because of three, uh, three initials. Uh, three initials, by the way, categorize all our relationship with the United States. Um, there's QME, Qualitative Military Edge, um, MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, and there is OSP. OSP is uh, Offshore Procurement. And under the Bush package, Israel could retain more than 26% of the aid to do with that aid what we needed to do. Of course, well, it created several tens of thousands of jobs in this country. But beyond that, our military has to create capabilities that the United States doesn't need, that we need. Uh, the Obama MOU eliminated the 26%. So all the aid has to be spent in the United States. So not just it, it also, there were also taught strings put on our request to get what's known as plus ups from Congress. We go back to Congress and say, listen, you know, we got the four billion dollars, but we need more money for for Iron Dome, for David Sling, which is an interim level uh, anti ballistic system. Um, and uh, Obama wanted to cut out our ability to go to Congress. Um, our friends Lindsey Graham uh, taught us how to end run that, but uh, uh, there were a lot of strings attacks, even more strings attacks than MOU for four billion dollars a year. And you ask yourself, is it worth it? And the answer, of course, is no. Now we have a problem that we're deeply dependent 
on the United States for ammunition. There is a a global, certainly Western depletion of ammunition because of Ukraine. Uh, underneath where we're sitting um, are station warehouses uh, with pre-positioned American munitions and equipment, about $2 billion worth. They were put there by George Bush beginning of the century to serve American military personnel in the Middle East. They have mostly withdrawn. And uh, the myth retain, remains that this, these munitions serve those forces, but everyone knows they're for us. And what happens is when we run low on ammunition, we get the keys, literally the keys to these warehouses. We go down, we, we take what we need, we write it down, we pay for it. But in 2014, during an earlier war with Hamas, um, President Obama denied us the keys uh, for certain forms of ammunition because, quote unquote, we were, we were killing too many Palestinians. And uh, so that makes us dependent on American munitions. I can give you one case in the second Lebanon war. And I remember this very succinctly because I was there in the army. Um, we were using American cluster bombs and the United States was criticizing us harshly for using cluster bombs. And so after the war, we developed our own cluster bombs and we became independent in terms of cluster bombs, which were an important part of munitions for fighting a, a, a deeply embedded enemy like Hamas. We're going to have to do that. We're going to have to do that with, um, 105 millimeter tank munitions. We're going to have to do that with 155 millimeter uh, artillery, and most important, we're going to have to do that with um, with missile with uh, jet fired uh, air to ground missiles known as JDAMs. Uh, I want to talk about your tenure as ambassador, if if um, if you can. I think most of us think of um, ambassadorial life. It depends on what country you're representing and where you're visiting, but some dinners, an occasional ceremony. Uh, I have a feeling being ambassador from Israel to the United States is a little different. So reflect on that. Give us a, a picture of what that was like when you were there uh, and what it might be like now for Michael Herzog, who's the current uh, ambassador from Israel to the United States. Uh, how's it different? Might it be different in wartime? Okay. First of all, <laughs> ambassadorial day. Okay, uh, you can't really talk about a day because you know there, it's twenty four seven. So what it is? I mean, uh, just on the surface, that you are the nexus between four hundred thirty five members of Congress, one hundred twenty members of Knesset. How many ministers we have here? The cabinet, the president, the prime minister, the IDF, the American Armed Forces, the Pentagon, the CIA, the Mossad, um, FBI, um, <laughs> Shabak. Um, the economic community, commerce, um, the scientific community, the Jewish communities and the state of Israel, various Christian communities, African-American communities, Latino communities, um, state governments, local governments, the press, the Israeli press. Um, how should we go on? I mean, I could literally spend an hour telling you this. And that's just, you know, that's just the daily routine. And, then, of course, you do have a social schedule. And, and my social schedule was something like Superman. Why? You, you'd go to maybe two or three different events a night. Each one required a different change of clothing. So you'd run in you know, with a, with a business suit, put on a, uh, a tux, then run into something and put on tails, and back and forth and back and forth. The, ma the hardest thing for me was at 7 o'clock when the rest of the NBC went home, I began another day. Then you come in at 11, 12 o'clock at night from having, you know, schmoozed uh, professionally for several hours and being on your feet, um, then the phone starts ringing because it's morning in Israel. 
And uh, you'll be called in. You can be called into the embassy two, three, four o'clock in the morning to have a, a secure phone call there. Um, and uh, you are constantly, constantly sleep deprived and depressed. Now, in my period, um, we didn't have crises in U.S. relations. We had daily revolving crises, and uh, they they sort of blended into one another. And, uh, and the Obama period was the toughest period. I'll tell you what someone's in a story. It was the toughest period in U.S. relations. And um, so it was constant. And, you know, then you're also sitting on, 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 a, on a volcano known as the Israeli embassy, which is 125 people in it. Um, and all sorts of interesting uh, shenanigans going on there. Um, and then you try to get out of Washington as often as possible. There is a very big place called the United States of America. So you try to get out and, and travel and speak, get to campuses. And I was, um, this is answer your question about Mike Herzog. I'm, I, I, I'm very fond of Mike. We go way back. I've worked with all the Herzogs, by the way. I've worked with his brother. I've worked with his father. And I worked with his uncle. I was the last uh, advisor to Abi Ibn. And uh, so I know the Herzogs very well um, and deeply respect them. And, uh, but every ambassador is different. You know, I can say that, say, Ron Dermer, my, my successor, he was very much Bibi's ambassador to Obama and Trump. Um, I was not that. First of all, I was one of a member of the could. I was a professional appointment, not a political appointment. Um, and I saw myself as being the ambassador of the state of Israel to the people of the United States. Mike Herzog comes from the world of diplomacy and quiet diplomacy. He's very much the diplomat's diplomat. He's not a person who's going to get on CNN or MSNBC and start arguing with people and, you know, firing back. Um, there were days and nights where I would sleep in my vehicle outside the studios in Washington because I'd be going from one after another. And I, I continue to do that now because uh, I am I saw that the way to attain influence, because I wasn't such a close protege of, of Netanyahu, which is a source of most ambassadors' strength. They, they, it's the plenipotentiary idea that when you're talking to the ambassador, you're talking to the prime minister, the same guy. And that was certainly the case of Ron Dermer. It was not my case. So I had to get um, influence and achieve, achieve influence and access by constantly being in the press, constantly being on TV. Uh, and that the administration was an administration that was very sensitive to the media because it was actually composed of a lot of people from the media. And, um, and it worked. It, 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 was, it was a successful policy. You know, people... Um like to say that Israel is not very good at Hasbara, which is Hebrew for, I don't know, you call it, I'll call it communications. You could call it PR, you could call it propaganda, but that, you know, Israel doesn't make its case. You know, Israelis are gruff. They're, um, they don't really care what the rest of the world thinks. And so they, they, they give it short shrift. And um, having lived here now for two and a half years and living through the middle of this, I have a very different perspective. I think Israel desperately wants to be loved by the rest of the world, which is a human, but I don't think a very helpful uh, emotion. Israelis feel that way. And Hasbara communications can only go so far when social media is just relentlessly amplifying lies on both sides, I'm sure. But um, I, it, of course, feels like to me that it's a little one-sided, but I could be wrong. Um, what are your thoughts on that question of, of, of whether Israel's doing a good or bad job in making its case in this current moment? As someone who's been representing Israel in one form or another literally for half a century, that is the free, most frequently asked question. Why is Israel's PR so bad? It's almost never a meeting where that, that question isn't last. 
And, you know, and there are many answers to it. It's the old Ben-Gurion adage that it's not important, not important what the non-Jews think. It's important what the Jews do. Um, there is a, a parochialism here, a provincialism um, in Israel. Um, even you, know, you look at what our military spokesmen are speaking to the world. They, they put on TV to speak to the world the same people they put on TV to speak to Israelis. And so they, when you speak to Israelis, you want a cruff, tough officer. But when you speak to the world, you may want a, a, a pleasantly speaking woman officer from a different ethnic background. They don't do that. They don't understand they're talking to different audiences. But these are very technical things. So I must tell you what the conclusion after 50 years, and I bring this conclusion to government meetings, is you know we can invest another billion dollars. We can train a generation of spokespeople, something I try to do uh, many years at the Shalem Center, was to train a generation of uh, what I call the cadet program. Um, recently pitched it to Tel Aviv University as much as two years ago, that we'd have to get young people out of the army who speak different languages and come from different backgrounds. Not much interest. Okay. But the basic reason our public diplomacy, I would call it, uh, is so bad is because we are the Jewish state. And as much as we like to think we're not, that we're a normal state, we're just like any other state, we are far from being like any other state. We are judged by a completely set, different set of criteria, um, held under that microscope that you know of a power that no other country uh, is examined. And much of the criticism leveled out of us, if you look at it clear, cl uh, closely, echoes classic anti-Semitic tropes. Whether it be the massacre of the innocents from the book of Matthew, um, whether it be the blood libel, whether it be deicide. And it just comes up. Listen, how many times have you read since this war? First of all, that we've killed 23,000 uh, Gazans, which is, a, is an inflated number that includes the number of terrorists we've killed and the number of Palestinians killed by their own rockets. Okay? But no one says that. And the source of that statistic is Hamas. Okay. How many times have you seen that cited? Multiple times a day. And then they'll always add mostly women and children. Is that verifiable? Or is it someone trying to say that Jews like killing women and children? Now, in the BBC, you go out, they'll simply say, hey, you guys, get, you, like, you guys like killing women and children. I have to give a credit to AOC in New York. She actually came out on Christmas and mentioned the murder of the innocents and attached it to what was going on in, in Gaza. She's the first one to actually come out and do that. But I've noticed this for years. And when we are dealing with the media, we are dealing with hatreds that go back 2,500 years. And so we have to be humble and realistic and noting that, okay, we can respond to this. We must respond to this. We have to defend ourselves as best as we can. At the end of the day, we are Jews. And we are up against a, and a hatred that has very deep and ancient roots. So on this question of the murder of the innocents, it's a reference to the Christian Bible, correct? Yes, Matthew. I think, um, I, I just want to say to listeners, it, it's not a, I'll try to say it briefly. It, it would take a very long time to explain this fully, but uh, it's hard for non-Jews to understand the Jewish historical legacy that we carry around. Um, once a year, religious Jews uh, fast uh, for 25 hours 
not drinking water, not eating, because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed uh, 2,000 years ago and beforehand. And we also commemorate lots of other things. But one I want to mention, uh, I want to tell a, short, a, a brief story. I was, I was asked by colleagues, uh, I was at George Mason University, I was asked by colleagues, as a Jew who was publicly identified and people knew me as Jewish, um, why I was not interested in, uh, or my reaction to uh, Mel Gibson's movie uh, about uh, the life of Jesus. And um, I said, well, I'm not going to see it. So I don't know if it's interesting to you what I'm going to say about it because I, I don't plan to see it. And they were surprised. Why, well, why wouldn't you see it? I said, well, why don't we talk? So we had a session and invited people to, to come. And there were, I don't know, 15, 20 people there. Some were very serious Christians. Some were just interested. They weren't religious at all. Uh, some were probably Christian name only. I think I was the only Jew. I'm not sure, but I think I was the only Jew. These were staffers and and uh, colleagues of mine. And I started out by saying that, you know, there's a long history of Christian anti-Semitism where we were accused of killing Jesus. Uh, and uh, that the Crusades, for example, loomed large in Jewish consciousness when on the way to the Middle East, uh, the Christian crusaders practiced on the Jews. They swept through Europe and killed hundreds and thousands of, of Jews in France and Germany and elsewhere. And in the name of Jesus Christ, their Lord. So I, I looked up, I looked around the room as I was telling the story about the crusades and a lot of people were looking at their shoes. Um, yeah. They were horrified. They were unaware of this. It was not part of their Christian history. Right. They didn't know about it. They were ashamed. They they stuttered and and struggled to to respond to my what I was telling them. Of course, in the Middle Ages, Jews were accused of using the blood of Christian children to make matzahs for uh, Passover. So these kind of things loom large in Jewish consciousness and the rest of the world, many educated people know about this, but many don't. And they think, well, Jews are so obsessed with this anti-Semitism thing. I mean, like enough already. By the way, I don't like to call it anti-Semitism anymore. I call it Jew hatred. It's a little more straightforward. So when you have murderers, rapists, and kidnappers broadcasting their um, escapades with delight and reveling in the fact that they're bragging to their parents even that they're killing Jews, which we have recordings of, it's, uh, it strikes a historical chord for Jews that I think may be difficult for non-Jews to understand how it resonates with us. So uh, it, it is tough that we do seem to be held to a double standard. I don't want to, uh, well, you know, you, maybe you a lot of, I, I'll, I'll just add that, yeah. you know, if you work for National Public Radio or the New York Times, I know you get criticized from both sides that your coverage is grossly unfair. And of course, it probably is. It's a very complicated issue. And it is a, uh, uh, it's hard to cover it uh, objectively and with balance. So uh, I, I want to recognize that. But I think, as, as you say, I think the very fundamental, we could do better. Israel, Israel could do better defending itself. But I do think um, we're held, I happen to agree with you, we're held to a double standard. Let's let's move to the current moment, um, which you're writing about a lot on your Substack, um, and, and let's dig into it. Well, let's start with the question of of the number of of civilian dead in Gaza, which is horrifying. 
and the situation there is horrifying. Um, you said the number, you see the number over and over again of 23,000. Uh, that will stop soon because it will go up either for many possible reasons, but it may sadly go up because more people will die as this war continues. And I don't know what the actual number is. Uh, like you, I recognize Israel says that 9,000 of the 23,000 are were Hamas fighters. So it's, quote, only 14,000 civilians. That's still an enormous number, still a tragedy. Um, it, what should Israel do, if anything, to fight this war humanely and whatever that, I don't even know what, that's a hard phrase to define, but what is, what might it mean to you? And certainly as someone who was, has been involved in the government uh, in a number of different ways, how, how could Israel, how can it do better? Should it? Uh, and how should we think about it as observers? Yeah, we have to also add, Russ, that of the 23,000, 9,000 are terrorists, but about 30, 30% of the remaining 14,000 are casualties caused by Palestinian rockets. So you're down to, as I said before, a, a, a ratio of about two to one civilian to soldier, soldier to combatant deaths. That is roughly half the ratio of the United States and Iraq and Afghanistan, half the rate of NATO and Kosovo. Something of a world record, by the way. Certainly a world record for intense urban combat against an enemy that is dug in and using a civilian population as a shield. The criticism in this country is not that we're killing too many Palestinians. Uh, the criticism in this country is they're not doing enough to protect our soldiers and that we are taking uh, unnecessary risks with our soldiers' lives in order to curry favor internationally. Now, you know, that, uh, that argument, of course, is more complex because we need that favor uh, in order to gain time and space for the IDF to get ammunition, for example, from the United States. If we kill too many Palestinians, that supply of ammunition might be uh, threatened. So, you know, even that has, even the way we're conducting this war and trying to minimize Palestinian deaths also has not just a moral component, but a strategic component. And then there's the notion that we aren't just any state, we aren't just any army. We are the democratic uh, Jewish state of, of Israel with that army, which has a strong moral code. I spent about 35 years in that army and I, I fought in Gaza. I know what that's like. We are facing... You know, we are having this conversation with our, our nice libraries behind us. But as we're speaking, there are tens of thousands of Israelis who are engaged in week after week after week, 24-7, of intense combat. Now, I've been in several wars, but I've never experienced anything remotely like this. And the soldiers I'm talking to are coming out and saying to me, Gaza is hell. Everything is booby-trapped. The cats are booby-trapped. The roosters are booby-trapped. The babies are booby-trapped. Every single second, you don't know if the last second is your last. You don't know where the, the entrance to a tunnel is behind you and someone's going to come up and shoot you in the back. You don't know this. You're living in constant fear. You're living in constant um, toxic environments, physical environments. And they say it's hell. And if you say to these soldiers, we should take greater care and uh, in trying to limit the number of Palestinian casualties, look at you like you're crazy. You're detached from reality. You're dealing with the, and we don't even have a word in the English language to describe Hamas and their barbarism and their Satanism. It's pure evil. And our soldiers will fire at anything. They're just trying to stay alive. Anything that moves. That's how, our, unfortunately, our own three hostages were killed and why no one was arrested afterward. 
because this is the state of our soldiers in Gaza. So we can have a nice academic discussion about this, but there's a there's a reality discussion. And that is, this is war. It's a brutal war. It is a war of national survival for this country in which tens and, and at some point even hundreds of thousands uh, of our citizens were involved defending us. And um, yes, it's painful. It's agonizing to see the pictures. And I'm, I'm on the international press all day. The press you see in this was completely different. Uh that you then what you see uh, internationally. And I go on this. Explain. Really, well, I go on this really news every day almost. And you know, they their their coverage is about is about heroism, stories of survival, stories of uh of bereavement. The stories in the international press are almost uniformly uh, about Palestinian suffering in great detail, particularly the suffering of children, children, children. It's always children, right? And um the they're they're detached from that reality, and we we the question is you know in order to sort of placate that international opinion, do we have to risk the lives of our soldiers? This is one of the many grueling fundamental dilemmas we face. You know, we face a whole series of dilemmas around the hostages, but this is one of them. And uh, go tell the parents who've just lost their twenty one year old son or daughter. That that son and daughter had to die in order to, you know, to take greater care to limit Palestinian casualties. This was the the lesson of the Janine battle in 2002, where we lost something like 24 paratroopers trying to limit civilian casualties. Um, and uh, afterwards, we were accused of, of uh, perpetrating a massacre, the Janine massacre. So we lost the 24 soldiers, and we still got blamed for producing a massacre that never occurred, by the way, completely fabricated. And within Israeli society, not within the IDF, but in Israeli society, people said enough. We're not going to do this anymore. And those 24 were reservists with kids. And uh, we're just not going to do this anymore. So we have a moral code. We have a strict moral code. We are not leveling Gaza. Many people would like to. We have the ability, certainly have the military ability to level Gaza. We're not going to do that because we are the IDF, because we are the Jewish state. And because we have to, yes, function in the world. Uh, but I don't think you can say to the, 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 the Israeli army, as the Americans have been saying to us, I think unfairly and disingenuously, that we have to slow down and be more precise. You get into Gaza and be more precise. You send your soldiers in there and see how precise they're going to be, about as precise as they were in Fallujah and Mosul. Um, by the way, the Americans are giving us, and Gitmer told earlier about a mixed messages. Uh, the mixed message from Washington yesterday is the, the, the operation is going too slowly, okay? It should be going faster, but they want us to slow down. <laughs> Go figure that one out. Right? So just to clarify, the IDF is the Israel Defense Forces. It's the, what people who call the army here. Um, I, you say we're not leveling Gaza. My limited viewing of the uh, news, I don't watch the news much, the TV news here, but I do spend way too much time on X, formerly known as Twitter, looking at video and hearing people discuss, discuss and describe it. Um, Northern Gaza looks like a moonscape, at least the part that's being broadcast. It does look leveled. Now, one thoughtful observer said to me uh, that those videos, which are disturbing and look something like Dresden, they're not like Dresden, by the way, because the people weren't, most of the people were not in those buildings when they were leveled. It's an important right. distinction. But it looks like a moonscape. And this thoughtful observer said to me, well, 
those videos are not for the West, and they do <clears throat> make Israel look bad for the West. Those are for the Middle East. Those are for our neighbors to say, uh, where there's a very different culture, I should emphasize here, and you come, you become very aware of it when you live here for any length of time. Uh, it's a different culture here in the Middle East, and those pictures are designed to say to the to our neighbors, "Don't mess with us," because this you will you will bring this onto yourself. Um, respond to that. I, you know, it, it looks to me like we've pushed about a million people south. They don't have enough food. That's not our fault, Israel's fault. That's probably Hamas's fault. Uh, but we are going to lose that uh, battle of information, that info battle, info war, because the pictures are horrible and it does not look good. It looks like we're leveling Gaza, Gaza and uh, we have no uh, plan for tomorrow. We'll turn to tomorrow in a second, but just react to this this claim that we are, in fact, it sure looks like we're leveling Gaza. Well, we've destroyed between, they say between 40 and 60 percent of the houses have been damaged or destroyed. Um, and that is a result of, of Hamas, because Hamas is hiding in those buildings and we have no choice. And they're shooting from the buildings. Again, we didn't go in there to level Gaza. And again, we could. We could have no building standing. We didn't have to have the um, 1.2 million Palestinians leave the battlefield. We're paying a huge price for that, for saving them, okay, for the best we can. Um, there just there's just no easy answers here. And I, you know, for the life of me, I've been involved in government for many years, involved in the military in many years. I don't see where Israel at any point had any choice other than to exhibit greater cruelty, which is what many Israelis want because they feel that we're paying too high hard a price in terms of our own soldiers' blood. Um, Israelis opposed the humanitarian quarters, which the United States pressured us to make. It in, Israel, Israelis opposed the supply of fuel to Gazans because they're saying, listen, Hamas has you know now 132 of our hostages. Back then it was 242 hostages. Um, you know, why should we give them anything? This is the only leverage we have over them. They won't even let the Red Cross in to visit these people. This is the leverage we have. So it wasn't just vengeance. It was just an attempt to simply get these hostages back. One of the hardest things I have to explain to Israelis, Russ, is that the events of October 7th, we talked about barbarism and evil and the satanic nature of them, um, were pretty much par for the course for the Middle East. This is what Arab peoples have done to one another. It's what the Syrians did to their own population. You don't think they beheaded and burned and raped them and dismembered them? Of course they did. It's what the Lebanese did to one another, and I spent a long time in Lebanon. It's exactly what they did to one another. Whether it be the massacres in Damour De- in or the massacres in Shopper and Tertila, it's exactly what they did to one another. Why would they treat the Jews any differently? This, you talk about cultural differences. This, this is the Middle East way of war. I was interviewing for um, a major American network uh, two days ago, and the interviewer was, was Iranian. And she was talking about how the Iranian regime has treated the protesters of the of the up of the uh, the revolt of uh, the most recent revolt about two years ago, the women's revolt. How they arrested thousands of women, threw them in prisons, and raped them every single day, every single day. Welcome to the Middle East, folks. Yes, there is an element of sending a message, and um, and that message has to be internalized. It's it's. I'll just if I can go on for one second, you know, a good friend sure. of mine uh, was uh, Jeff Goldberg. He's the editor of The Atlantic. And um, after one of the many rounds of fighting with, with uh, Hamas, uh, Jeff called me and says, I get what Israel's tactics are, but what's the strategy? 
And I said, Jeff, you don't understand. The tactics are the strategy. Since coming into being in 1948, every couple of years, uh, they're going to try to destroy us again. And every couple of years, we're going to have to remind them that it's not a good idea. And that buys us a certain number of years. And during those years, we build the society. We build Israel, one of the world's most successful nation states. And we live our lives. The Middle East stays where it stays. It doesn't go anywhere. And um, every once in a while, there will be Arab leaders who say, okay, enough of this. You know, the Egyptians waged not one, but four wars of national destruction against us. And after it, they said, okay, enough. Jordanians, two wars of national destruction against us. Afterwards, they said, enough. Uh, now we have the Abraham Accord, signatory countries. All right, so it's not as if the tacticum strategy it goes on indefinitely. Maybe with some factions like Hamas will go on indefinitely, but not with everybody. Now, even the PLO at a certain point realized enough is enough. Maybe. Uh, at least superficially. Um, so uh, I remain optimistic that, you know, this is the this is the strategy. Maybe it's a strategy, a, a tactical strategy that many countries in the world are going to have to adapt in the 21st century. So yesterday, uh, somebody posted, maybe it wasn't yesterday, somebody posted a video on Twitter on X that um, showed a appeared to show a, a crowd of, of Gazans, or I think it was Gazans, uh, running and being shot at. And it was posted by saying the IDF is, is trying to mow down civilians. They, they were looking for food, evidently, or coming to receive humanitarian aid, and they were being um, sniped at and killed. Um, observers, when I said, you know, how do you know these, this is Israeli snipers, it was the claim, they said, well, how do you know? It's not, which is a tough standard. But, you know, I said, my answer, by the way, many people weighed in and said, uh, you can tell from the noise of the gunfire, these are AK-47s, they're not the Israeli rifle, uh, the M-16. So it's not Israelis. But put that to the side. When, when people ask me, how do I know? I say things like, well, my students here at Shalom College serve in the Army. I, I talk to them. I know what they're told to do. I know what codes of conduct they are expected to live up to. Uh, certainly, IDF soldiers sometimes fail that code of conduct. Under the stress of war, they fail. We often have, almost always, we have investigations when egregious mistakes are made. And if they're not mistakes and they're actually uh, uh, decisions made by, by people, sometimes those folks are punished, Israeli soldiers. But at the same time, I, I'm not naive I know that under war, really horrible things can happen. And I also know that spokespeople lie um, in the name of their country's reputation. So I've heard, for example, that, yes, Israel pushed the uh, northern Gazan residents into the south, which, by the way, not only is it an, a, an unusual wartime strategy to tell your enemy that you're coming, your right. enemy is not dressed in a uniform, so surely many of the people who went south were not average Gazan citizens, but were, in fact, Hamas fighters with hostages dressed in uh, clothing to hide them from, from Israelis when they went south. So it's a, it's a rather remarkable moment in military history. But having said that, many people respond to me when I say that and say, yeah, but when they went down south, Israel targeted them and killed them. Um, true, false, in your own personal experience, 
uh, in the Israeli army? Do you really believe that we have moral codes of conduct that, that where we expect more of our soldiers than other people? Uh, we do. And we do have the moral conduct. And I know it personally. And by the way, I was, a guy, I was an army spokesman for, oh, let's see, 20 years. And never lied once. I mean it. Never had to lie. Nothing. So really not as far as you know, Michael. I appreciate that. Oh, never <laughs> once. Um, never intentionally. Never intentionally. Um, and sometimes you get the different information from the field. Okay. Um, and sometimes it cuts different ways. I remember one case where uh, a mine went off on a Gaza beach and killed nine members of one family. And Israel immediately came out and apologized until three days later when it found out that the mine was not an Israeli, was not an Israeli bomb, but a, but a Hamas torpedo that exploded. Um, they were killed by Hamas, not by us. And we ended up apologizing for it. So sometimes you tell untruths that cut the other way. They harm us. We, we've learned not to apologize so quickly. Uh, look at the al hospital issue. Now, we didn't rush to apologize for that, thank, thankfully. Thankfully. Um, but yes, mistakes happen. What I call the Kfar Khanna syndrome. Uh, twice in 1996 during the Grapes of Wrath operation, and again in 2006 uh, during the Second Lebanon, in the same village, Kfar Khanna, in South Lebanon. Um, one of our tank shells hit a target and killed, you know, between 70 and 100 uh, civilians. It wasn't done on purpose. We were accused of doing it on purpose, and both times it had immediate um, tactical diplomatic ramifications uh, to our, you know, to our detriment. Doesn't matter. The 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 um, the default assumption is that we're killing uh, civilians on purpose. But let's put it this way: if we were the Syrian army, if we were any of the factions in Lebanon's civil war, if we were Hezbollah, we wouldn't have told those Palestinians to leave. We would have bombed them right where they were. And I think we would have sent an unequivocal message to the entire Middle East. Don't screw with us. You don't do this. We didn't do that. And instead, we went in on the ground. Yes, we damaged and destroyed a lot of buildings. But we've also lost over 500 soldiers, which is a, 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 an almost insufferable burden for this country of this size. I like to see what it is in per capita American terms. Uh, but something the equivalent of, say, you know, 15, 20,000 soldiers killed already in 100 days. Just to be clear, uh, a majority of the soldiers we have lost died on October 7th. Uh, you know, that I'd love for this war to be over um, and for that ratio to stay where it is, but we'll, we'll find out. Um, let's talk about the goals of the war, which are in conflict. <laughs> um, every Israeli likes to hear that we're going to get the hostages back and we're going to eliminate Hamas. Uh, there's a huge amount of resolve to achieve both those goals, but of course, they're in conflict. And you wrote a poignant essay recently, we'll post it, about the dilemma that Israel faces. Um, how do you think that's going to work going forward as the um, as perhaps the world gets less patient um, and Israel has to decide how to proceed? I've written several articles about this, Russ, because it's it is it is as a it is an as a a case study. It's it's sui generis. I, I don't know know of no incident like it in history uh, facing a leadership facing a society, um, but particularly this society. You know, Israel comes into being in 1948 with a dual identity: we're Jewish and democratic. And you know how hard that's been to reconcile those two, particularly in the period leading up to this war. Um, but we have another dual identity: it's a defense identity. You know, Israel's created. Uh, three years after the Holocaust, almost to the date, 
Um, and it comes into being on the basis of a promise, a covenant, which is this state exists in order to ensure that that will never happen again. We will defend the state. We will defend its people. And there's another part of that covenant, which says that uh, if in defending the state, uh, some of our soldiers fall captive, we will do everything in our power to get them back. That's the basis of the Entebbe raid, certainly many other instances um, in Israel. And it's on the basis of that understanding, that covenant that Israelis send their children to the army. On October 7th, um, Hamas hit us between the eyes. Not, not these eyes, the pronoun eyes, the two, the two identities we have. Um, it got us in the defense of the state, the defense of the people. We broke that promise. But it also presented us with an impossible dilemma. How do we then, in restoring the, the deterrence power, restoring the security, the covenant of the state, how do we do that and at the same time redeem the hostages? And they are largely mutually exclusive and you know, sort of irreconcilable goals. Because the easiest thing for the IDF to do, besides I talked about you know carpet bombing Gaza, we're not going to do that. But the easiest thing that we could have done was to go into Gaza, filled up all the tunnels either with salt water or with flammable material, and thrown in a match, and you know it's over. But we can't do that because of the hostages and tremendous pressure on the government now to you know, make a deal with Hamas, you know, cut a deal. As if such a deal is actually on the table for Hamas, I don't think it is. They, they either want victory, they want they want martyrdom. But even if it were on the table, at what price? It would mean emptying all of our jails uh, of terrorists who have killed Jews. And you have to go to all those families and say, hey, I'm sorry, the guy who killed your son or your daughter is, is going to go scot-free. And what that means for Israeli society. But it means something else also in a sort of a security way. It means that... Every, every terrorist organization knows that the more hostages it gets, the more bargaining it's going to have, and that every terrorist gets who kills a Jew, no, he can kill a Jew and sit in prison for a couple of years and then get out in a prisoner for hostage exchange. And so terror goes way, way up, and hostage chasing goes way, way up. In the long run, we've learned from Gilad Shalit. It ends up costing you more than you've saved. Explain the Gilad Shalit case to listeners. He was taken in a cross-border border Hamas raid in 2006. Spent five years in captivity. We negotiated for his release. And we paid for it with the freeing of 1,027 terrorists from our jail. Uh, among those terrorists, almost all of them went back to committing acts of terror. Uh, and one of them was uh, Yahya Sinwar, the head of Hamas. And so the release to get that one soldier back. We not only encouraged the next round of hostage taking on a, ma- a vastly greater scale, but it cost us. We saved one life, but we've lost now well over 1,300. So there we go. Um, that's the kind of dilemma facing the state of Israel today. I, I've quoted my daughter often. I should quote her again. She says, um, you know, we should recognize that we lost the war on October 7th. There's no winning this war. And we have one goal, and one goal only, and that is to release the hostages, redeem the hostages, because if you don't, I won't be able to send my kids to the army. To which my son replies, if we don't destroy Hamas, you will not have an army to send your children to. And there you have it. Yeah, that's a cheerful note. Let's, let's, um, let's turn to 1967 for a minute, if, um, if we could. Uh, you spent a lot of time immersed in that war, as in your writing and the history of it. In many ways, that war 
feels like the opposite of this one. It was short. It was six days. Uh, it ended with a total victory, which is literally impossible. This war, it may end with some positive things, but we can't call it a, a total victory remotely. It'll have too many tragic deaths on both sides. It will have unbearable psychological damage to this country. Uh, and the day after, which we'll talk about in a minute, is also, of course, very, very uncertain. So it was short in 1967, and it ended euphorically. Uh, and that ushered in a tragically um, overconfident period, which, of course, helped create the world that led to the Yom Kippur War of 1973. As you think back on that time and your study of it, uh, what are your thoughts with its, uh, for its, any lessons for this moment that, that come to you or that have crossed your mind or that haunt you? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, many, many, many. I mean, completely different world. Um, you know, we fought an enemy that was wearing a uniform and tanks and planes. For the most part, except for the battles of Jerusalem, very far from urban centers with very few civilian casualties. Um, very different war. Um, and yes, very short war with a conclusive, you know, I call it a uh, Mount Mitsubishi moment. You know, the Temple Mount is in our hands. There's actually a moment where you declare victory of the flag. Uh, that is certainly not going to happen uh, in Gaza. Uh, the world was with us, too. Um, and that was the last gasp uh, of, in the West of heroism. Um, in 1967 was an inflection point in the West generally where the the people who had been victims before were looked down upon. And all of a sudden it became, in 1967, it became cool to be a victim. And it became uncool to be a victor. We sort of missed, we missed, we came out a little bit too late with that victory. Um, and, uh, you know, you see, you see the switches in Hollywood. We, I grew up with the, the Cowboys being good and the Indians being bad, and it switched in 1967, 68. Um, so very, very different, uh, different country, different world. Um, the press celebrated our victory internationally. And the other side were the bad guys. Nasser was the bad guys. The Syrians were the bad guys. The word Palestinian, nobody had ever heard of yet. It's amazing how the Palestinians don't figure in. The most important lesson of 67 is this, uh, that the United States did not want us to go to war. President Johnson was adamant and uh, reiterated over and over again that uh, if Israel decided to go to war, it would go to war alone. The United States, he was very disturbed when he got the word on the morning of June 5th that Israel had launched this attack against the Egyptian Air Force. And the lesson is this, not just in 67, but of all our wars, 1948, 1956. 1967, 73, I can go on and on, 82, 91, the first Gulf War, um, second Lebanon War, all of our wars with Gaza, and I'm probably leaving out a few. Uh, in almost every case, the United States has said to us, don't go to war. Every case. Even the Iraq nuclear operation, 1981, they said no. And every time we said, thank you, but... We have to defend ourselves. The Americans got angry, and later they respected us for it. Johnson turned around in 1967, and he was the architect of the U.S.-Israel Defensive Alliance. They respected us for it. it happened with Ronald Reagan after the, uh, the Osiric uh, nuclear bomb in 1981. They condemned it. U.S. condemned it. U.S. joined with Iraq in condemning us on the Security Council. United States delayed the sale of uh, delivery of F-15 jets 
and then turned around to Reagan became one of our best friends. George Bush, by the way, was very tough with Israel at the beginning of the second intifada. You know, I remember we sent five tanks into somewhere in Ramallah and he forced us to get them out in the same day. Um, and then finally in 2002, when we launched Operation Defensive Shield and we reoccupied the cities, the Palestinian cities, George Bush became our strongest ally. America likes a country, maybe it's human nature, it likes a country that stands up for itself. Um, every time the United States has said to us, don't go to war, and we didn't go to war, not only did we end up paying a price, but we ended up getting contempt from the United States, disdain. That was the case in 1973, where Kissinger said to Golda, don't, don't launch a preemptive strike. To get, did we get respect after 73? We got a lot of pressure for territorial discussions. 1991, we were getting hit by dozens of uh, Scud missiles fired by Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And uh, George Bush Sr. said to Yitzhak Shamir, don't respond, don't respond. Shamir didn't respond. And what did we get? We got Madrid with pressure to make territorial concessions. But no respect for that. No thank you. Zero. Zero. And that's the lesson I take away. It's a historical lesson. We have to stand up for ourselves. And that is a crucial lesson for right now. Because if tomorrow the administration's position changes to one, we need a ceasefire. If the administration says you cannot continue, you cannot open a second front against Hezbollah up north at a time when Hezbollah has basically made the northern part of Israel Judenrein, okay, um, and is actually outdoing free of Jews and, and is um, and is outdoing Hamas in the firing of missiles, the number of missiles fired daily, we're going to have to say to the United States, thank you, but. Yeah. And my, if the empirical record here is, is any indication, we'll get a lot of anger at us. In the end of the day, we'll get respect. I don't know how much taste there's going to be here for a second or against Hezbollah after however Gaza winds down. Uh, but let's, let's focus on the, that winding down for a minute as, and, and, and close. Um, Israel takes a lot of criticism that we don't have an end game for Gaza. Uh, my response to that is that's not our problem. I'm sure we will contribute to that rebuilding if, if the world wants us to, if the Gazans want us to. We certainly have a strong interest in seeing Gaza be a successful uh, place for, for people to flourish rather than uh, to be poor and, and angry. Uh, we may not we may, through this uh, response, of course, if people say we're going to create a lot more people who are sympathetic to Hamas, possible. We certainly create a lot of people who are not sympathetic to Hamas. They're very angry at them, which is uh, also part of that reality. But there's not an obvious end game for the day after, um, but we can speculate about it. And I, I'm curious, uh, you wrote a piece on it uh, that we'll post. Uh, what's your answer for where... Hamas is likely to be whenever this war is effectively not a military war any longer? And then what is your longer uh, longer run view for uh, where this region is headed? And, um, you know, we st- <laughs> that shortly after the beginning of the war, when, when President Biden started talking about a two-state solution, I'm thinking, do you know what it's like here? <laughs> I guess not. Because the, the, whatever sympathy there was in the past, there was quite a bit. 
for the two-state solution. And over time, it has slowly and then sometimes decisively and briskly waned because of the facts on the ground from the perspective of the people who live in this very small country. Uh, and right now, there's zero, I think, taste for it, uh, virtually zero. And it's nice to say, maybe it's just PR on the part of the, maybe it's just pol- politicking on the part of the president and others. But uh, if that's out, which it is, I think, for the at least short, medium run, what, what might be in? So talk about first the day after in Gaza, and then the day after in the region, uh, in the aftermath of whatever this war leads to. Well, let me first say we can destroy Hamas, and I think we have to destroy Hamas. Um, you can't destroy the idea of Hamas. Because the idea of Hamas is the same idea as ISIS, as uh, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah. As Hezbollah. It, 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 these are, are jihadist organizations that seek to recreate the medieval caliphate in the Middle East. And then to expand that caliphate uh, to global dimensions. Hamas differs only in the sense in, in its ordering of priorities. First, you create a Palestinian Islamic state in the place of Israel, and then that expands to encompass the, the region and ultimately the world. Um, no different. You can't kill that idea with bombs and bullets. Um, you can kill it with education. Let's see if anybody's going to do that. But what you can do is, de- is degrade them to a degree that they can't threaten you as much. I mean, there are neo-Nazis running around the world today, but they're a lot less threatening because there's no Nazi Germany. Um, and there are there are ISIS cells around the world. They're a lot less uh, threatening without the Islamic State. Um, so this is what we have to do. The day after, and again, I've written about this, will be the demilitarization of the Gaza Strip, the internationalization of the Gaza problem. So it won't be just an Israeli problem or even an Israeli-Egyptian problem. It will almost certainly involve the creation of a cordon sanitaire around Gaza. No one's going to get close to that border again. Uh, right now, we have two security zones, zones in Israel. They're both in Israel, both in the north and the south. We have to expand that again. Um, it, we need international um, force, hopefully with a large Arab uh, component, uh, to supervise the reconstruction of Gaza, um, giving it an infrastructure it never had, because Hamas didn't care about an infrastructure, and, uh, and looking for an indigenous... Palestinian leadership that uh, you know cares more about their children and grandchildren than they do care about killing our kids and grandkids. Uh, it shan't be easy. That, that's the hardest stage. The hardest stage is finding the Palestinian leadership, um, not necessarily importing one from the West Bank and one from the West Bank that was in turn was reported imported from Tunis. Right? There's there's no confluence of interest, sort of grassroots confluence of interest. You really need someone who is homegrown. Um, uh, but all this may take a very long time. And, um, you know, I understand the political exigencies of the administration's pressure for, you know, for the day after scenario and, um, you know, for the two state solution. Um, most recently in the secretary of state's comments, um, he used to say that, you know, we are, we, we sign on to Israel's goal of destroying Hamas in his recent press conference here in Israel. He said, our goal is to prevent the recurrence of the events of October 7th and you know, being an old diplomat. I uh, said, whoa, that's a huge difference. And my, my gut feeling, you know, said that this means the administration no longer supports the destruction of Hamas. Maybe they don't believe it's possible we can do it because that's what they've been leaking to the, the press in, in Washington, that they support the creation of a, um, a Palestinian unity government that may have Hamas elements, elements in it, technocrats. And I thought that was just a gut feeling, but I was asked by 
a journalist uh, several days ago from the United States. Uh, what do you think about the administration's plan to create a, a, a Palestinian unity government? Uh, so, I mean, this is all pie in the sky stuff. And, you know, there actually is a country here with, with we are democracy. We have public opinion. My family here in this country is overwhelmingly left of center. If you say to them today, you know, two states, Palestinian Authority, they said, you're like crazy. Are you off your rocker? Um, for us, it's not politics. For us, it's life and death. I'm sitting here in my, this is, in spite of the, the books behind me, this is my bomb shelter. And off to the left of me is a bulletproof window. I'm sitting in Jaffa. I look out that window, I see the hills of Hebron. You put a Palestinian state there that's going to um, fall apart into a Hamas state within a matter of days, then this room will not be in rocket range. It will be in rifle range. And um, and no Israeli is willing to take that 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 risk and so on. I thought that um, personally, the secretary's remarks here totally look any Israeli feelings. You know, he's talking again about too many Palestinians killed on a day that nine Israeli soldiers were killed. And there's there's, there's a total detachment from our reality so do you have any long run long run meaning say within a generation optimism for how i mean the way you described our world israel 75 years old long older than more than half the countries in the world which is quite extraordinary and it's amazing that we're still here um you have a book, by the way, Israel 2048, referencing the 100th anniversary of, of the founding of Israel, which we hope will be here in 24 years. Um, I have not read. I look forward to reading it. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. But um, the way you described it before is that, well, we buy a few years um, and uh, maybe somebody makes peace with us. Is that, you think, our best long-run strategy? No, our best long-run strategy is to create the state of Israel. Every once in a while, we're going to have to defend ourselves and remind our enemies that attacking us is not a good, not a good idea. Um, and in between, we create this. And what do I mean by this? So you mentioned I've been here a long time. I've been here a long time. And uh, I came here for the first time in 1970. And there was nothing here. Our, our, our major export item was orange juice. Lower middle class country that had no relations with China, no relations with India, no relations with the Soviet bloc countries, no relations with Africa, no relations with the with most all South America. A nice relationship with the United States, not a strategic alliance by any stretch of the imagination. Um, no peace with Egypt, no peace with Jordan. Three million Jews caught behind the Iron Curtain, prisoners, hundreds of thousands of Ethiopian Jews, prisoners. You cannot have my historical experience. I'm not talking about you know centuries here, in the decades I've been here, and not be optimistic about this uh, this country's future. Cannot. If you would have told me the first time that I landed here that someday we would have relations with all these countries, complex relationships, but sometimes, but relationships that we'd have the probably the deepest deepest strategic alliance the United States had with any foreign country in the post World War II period. That we, we would be a technological powerhouse. Our, our per capita GDP would be vying with Japan's and, and closing in on Germany's. Um, that all the, every Jew in the world would be free today. Um, I'd say you're nuts. That we'd have peace with a major share of the Arab world and other Arab countries that want to make peace with us. I'd say you're insane. I don't want to know what drug you're on. And you can't look at that and, and not be optimistic. And even 
in this most despairing time, and it is a, 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 a time that's rife with despondency, anti-Semitism in the world, the human cause, our sense of loneliness, and truly there's a sense of loneliness here. In every crisis, there are immense opportunities. And this is an opportunity to correct some of the flaws in this country. That's what the book 2048 is about, is the issues we have to address. Most of them relate to sovereignty, extending sovereignty over the Negev, 62% of the country, kind of the country, extending sovereignty over populations like the Haredi population, which is really not under our sovereignty, correcting flaws in our healthcare system, our educational system. It's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, and we've learned something about ourselves. We've learned that Israeli society, I think, without competition, is the strongest, most resilient society on the planet. And what an asset that is. What an asset it is to learn something about ourselves. So I, you know, as, as, as despondent as I even get sometimes, yes, like I said, I'm, I'm overwhelmingly optimistic about the future. We're going to pull through this as we pull through much harder things. And uh, we'll come out stronger and better for it. My guest today has been Michael Oren. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Great, Russ. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.